Hello, hello, and welcome back to A Life Extraordinary. I'm your show host, Roberto, coming to you from my little silver podcasting booth in the middle of the forest somewhere in Whistler. And uh, it's back to my roots for me that, you know, being in the Canadian wilderness, uh, whether it be with the Airstream, the tent, a fire going, or a rooftop tent, uh, all of these things are at the core, part of what I love to do. And uh, But I have stories of your stories of a shark putting its nose into my cage and how an adventure perhaps um, normally not so dangerous could quickly become one. And I also wanted to chat about, you know, all things winter here because the last few days when I am coming out in winter, it's when you most are in the essence and easy to chat about not and whatnot. So I've got a big story for you from when I went sea kayaking on the Eye of Quebec um, with my lady and my buddy Wangsu, and things almost went very, very wrong. Um, so a bit of a contrast, you know, the shark cage story comes all the way back from uh, from a few years ago when I was in South Africa and in uh, an area known as Khansbai, and I was with Shark Lady Adventures. And really, you know, it's a very su sustainable practice. What they basically do is they put a cage next to your boat and they throw chum out uh, to bring the, the the shark close to you. But I, I digress. I'm telling you a little bit too much before I actually dive into the story. So without further ado, shark cage diving um, with Roberto. Uh, here you go. The water was somewhat murky. I could feel us rise and fall with the morning swell. My regulator tasted salty. Bella's steady breathing sent hurried bubbles to the close surface. I edged my feet under the tow bar, watching, waiting. The cage lid was closed over us, steel bars above, below, in front and back, a cage to protect us. An ambivalent jellyfish floated past my mask, brushing against my cheek, stinging lightly. I pushed it away with my camera housing. Ahead of me, I saw the tuna head splash and loll at the surface, a frayed yellow rope trailing towards me, telling of untold encounters. I couldn't help but, but humor at the situation. Here we were, dunked just below the Atlantic Ocean's surface, hoping to come face to face with a sea creature that can grow up to 5,000 pounds. 2,250 kilograms to be exact, and reach up to 20 feet long, or 6 meters, and bite you in half with little to no effort. Indeed, you all know I'm talking about the great white shark. When preparing for our Explore Africa adventure, we knew that no visit to the continent would be complete without visiting Shark Cage Diving's capital of the world, South Africa's Gansby. For divers, the Shark Cage Dive is one of the dives to do in your lifetime. When else do you have the opportunity to be so close and to see this titanic fish, one of the sea's most dangerous predators? What better way to explore the region than with one of South Africa's shark cage diving pioneers, Shark Lady Adventures? In the business for over 20 years, Kim, a.k.a. Shark Lady, and quite the eccentric cool lady, I must say, <laughs> has been taking tourists and divers on cage diving expeditions off of South Africa's Western Cape in order to heighten awareness and better understand this apex predator for whom significant research is still lacking. 
Battling the fear-mongering that Steven Spielberg's Jaws epitomizes has been an uphill battle for many reasons, notwithstanding the fact that great whites don't exactly look like cuddly babies. But when you have a marine biologist on board like Chris Perkins to enlighten you with all the misconceptions about sharks and then dazzle you with fascinating facts, you begin to see the great white in a very different way. We were four in the cave, anxious, waiting for the encounter of a lifetime. We peered down through the metal bars. They would be hard to spot from this angle. Great white shark dorsals top are actually blue-gray, while their bellies or ventral part is white, making it hard for unsuspecting prey to spot them as they attack from below, zooming up to 24 kilometers per hour as they lunge for their next meal. You see, shark attack, sharks attack from down to up. Shark Lady Adventures offers 5mm wetsuits and hoodies to keep you warm in the Atlantic Ocean's 15 degrees Celsius water. But being the expeditioners, we had our own gear. Both of us paired our 3mm Pioneer wetsuits from Oceanic with a Lavacore insulating shirt. My thoughts began to flitter to, to events on our Explore Africa adventure when an enormous shape suddenly materialized from below. I swung my camera housing around just as it opened its jagged mouth to grab the fish head. I could see that its eyes rolled back, leaving pearly whites in place. The rope floating on the surface suddenly went taut, and then a flick sent it back towards us. The shark veered with a speed unimaginable for its size and beelined for us. What a majestic creature to see, and now it was only a couple of feet away from us and closing. Time slowed. Another flick and the fish was out before the shark reached it. Another veer and he dove down straight down in front of us, leaving with only a mouthful of water and us with the memory of a lifetime. So that is my shark cage story. And uh, you'll be surprised that I actually was doing that in the summer of 2013. How time flies. But I dig. I did dig into the archive for this one. And uh, it is one of my lifetime stories that I like to tell people. And uh, so to give you a bit of a, an idea, you've got uh, the activity is shark cage diving. Uh, I went with a company called Shark Lady, shark Lady Adventures. And a parenthesis on another story that isn't in this uh, section that I just read you um, is is that when uh, when we were there, I went twice into the cage. The first time, um, my, I went with my lady and this is when we had this encounter where the, the shark spins around away from us just as it's getting close to the cage. And then she went up on deck. I went up and another group went, went through and I decided to go again. And, uh, but before that, the group that was in the water, uh, suddenly I see like this brown and mucusy, uh, chunky stuff floating around and I'm like, Ooh, what's that? Is that something that like the shark left or was it part of the chum? Uh, chum being, uh, you know, the head of the dead head of the fish type of thing that they, that they pull in. Um, and, uh, and no, it was, uh, a girl that because the cage is stuck up against the boat and anchored, you get quite the swell against you back and forth when you're in the cage. So there was a girl that was in the cage that had just puked. So, uh, so not so glorifying. Uh, and I hadn't included that in, in this part of the story, nor had I included that Shireen um, was also puking on the other side of the boat um, because, and that's why she hadn't jumped back in to the cage with me. So, so all of this has happened and I, and I get back into the cage 
And uh, so many people were being seasick that it was only another lady and I that were left there to uh, experience the next shark cage dive. And um, and this time I did without a regulator. The, the time that I went in with with uh, Bella was with a with a regulator. Uh, this time was just with a snorkel. And uh, and so the shark is coming towards us and it's coming at a really spectacular speed and the, and the water's pretty murky. So you don't, you can't, it's not like you can see them very far off. So they suddenly appear out of this abyss smoky water and, um, and it's coming straight to us. And we both kind of notice that uh, it doesn't stop. And uh, the nose goes right between uh, the, the hole of the cage and such that, Basically, the nose and the first teeth uh, are in the cage, in our cage. And uh, fortunately, we were only two, not uh, four, which would normally be in the cage. And so we kind of, in a slow motion way, just kind of sidestepped. Um, and I turned my camera down and, and whipped off a bunch of really cool pictures that you can find on my on my. I'm going to try and see the picture that I put up for this cast with where I, that I got of the sharks actually in my cave. And it's cave, you, know, you, you like flip forward and have it in your, it's, it's not uh, so perfect. I think that like the, the shark might've nicked me uh, or nicked the lady while we had uh, in the cage. And uh, and I look forward to showing you uh, this picture. It's uh, really quite, quite neat. Um, and it was quite a special moment. Another crazy, wild adventure. Oh, excuse me, I'm just going to grab some water here. Mm. Another crazy, wild adventure is um, is that we decided to go sea kayaking to what's called the Eye of Quebec. And the latitude is like... Um, up at 49th, at the 49th parallel. And uh, and it's just heading north of Quebec. There's this giant circular body of water um, that uh, is is massive. And it uh, became a reservoir for some of Quebec's largest dams. Um, it's also where an asteroid had hit and therefore created that, the, that, <laughs> that indentation in the entire Earth uh, that made it so. Um, so, so anyways, um, we decided to do a sea kayaking trip up there when, because the water is so, it was in November, I think. I'm on a podcast. Um, sorry about that. (laughs) Um, and, and so because the water moves so much there, um, it makes it such that, uh, it doesn't freeze. And and that's really cool because if the water does not freeze, then you're still able to be paddling in very wintry conditions. Um, that being said, it can freeze instantly overnight, so that's a concern that you can always have while you're while you're out there, right? So I'm going to jump into that in a moment, um, but let me just see here and make sure that I don't get any more. Uh, uh, calls at the moment <laughs> while I'm trying to dive in to this grand, grand story of paddling the Eye of Quebec. Um, now, uh, for those of you that don't know where Quebec is, it's one of Canada's provinces on the far right or east of the country. 
and uh, there's they say that there are up to three million or a million lakes uh, in there. What's the difference between a million and three, right? <laughs> so, anyways, um, here you go. Um, I wrote this a while back. The Eye of Quebec. Uh, it was minus 17 degrees Celsius. The wind was kicking at 30 to 40 kilometers per hour. The waters were in a frenzy. Three-foot chops slapped our boats from every direction. I watched in horror as a huge wave careened menacingly and fast towards Bella's sea kayak. It was going to crest on her broadside. There was nothing I could do. I knew she would certainly tip into the freezing waters and that both our lives were in imminent danger. I've never had such a moment of fear, for the fear was not for me. It was for my wife. We'd been together for six years and married for two months now, and we were possibly about to die. I looked back, hoping Wangsu's kayak was close so he could help. Shit, no signal of him. He must have tipped. I understood all of that in an eternal instant. It was just too cold. The waves were too wild. It was too windy, and the shoreline, while extremely close, was too steep. We were 1,200 kilometers from Montreal, north of the 51st parallel in the remote backcountry region of Maniquagon, Quebec. The reservoir we were on is the fifth largest in the world and is easily visible from space. Thanks to its annular shape, it's often referred to as the Eye of Quebec. With practically no development around it, it is true Canadian wilderness and it's a sea kayaker's paradise. We'd already been once in summertime and the experience spawned the idea to return in winter. A perfect place to do a winter gear review, we thought. A day before departure, as I picked up my car with new studded winter tires, the fellow at the counter asked me why I needed such tires, and I told him we were head where we were heading. He quickly quipped, There's nothing up there, to which I grinned and answered, Exactly. You see, this is the type of place I've always looked for. The more remote, the better, but usually the more dangerous, too. We carried Delorme two-way satellite communicators, known as in-reach devices, on every adventure. In case of an emergency, we can send an SOS for rescue, from anywhere in the world. Further, we can personalize the message sent when paired with a or tablet. The remote you are, the rescue will take. In venture to estimate that the average rescue on approximately three to four hours. This means that you have to stay alive until they get you. For emergencies such, such as a broken arm or leg, usually not a problem. But what happens if your sea kayak capsizes fast enough and get warm? you die. I knew that the moment Bella's kayak capsized, I would have to jump out of my boat and into the water with her, as the shock of tipping would surely be too much for her to handle in these conditions. I knew that the moment Bella's kayak... Uh, we, sorry. <laughs> we were both wearing our dry suits, which were full-length Gore-Tex waterproof suits with neoprene gaskets at the neck and wrists. This would give us at least an extra 20 minutes in the water before we both went into hypothermic shock and that not even taking into account that my suit has a leak. Our hands would last five minutes, maybe before becoming unusable. Neoprene gloves or not, the water was just too cold, and the wind unrelenting. Further, if I did get her out of the water and onto shore, I would have to build a fire or get into a down sleeping bag instantly, before the minus 17 degrees centigrade finished us off. What had I gotten us into? I looked behind me once again to see if Wangsu was in sight. Nothing. He had no dry suit. If he was in the water, he was done. He'd be hypothermic instantly. 
The conditions had seemed fine from our lee side launch and camp, but near the point, this was, this was far from the case. Out here, we were exposed to the northeasterly's Arctic breath. Uh, the wave came up. It was the monster that might tip me and would surely tip her. With Poseidon-like force, it lifted me high above the trough, almost capsizing me. It was building as it headed for my wife. I felt hopeless and petrified. We had opted to stay close to shore as a safety precaution, but it had worked against us and just added to our predicament. The waves ricocheted off the steep rocks, creating a melee of confusion that caused the incoming ones to crest. In moments, we would both be in the water, and all my survival skills would be put to the test. I knew that I would probably get us out of the water quickly enough, but would I be able to build a strong and fire fast enough? There's a short story by Jack London called The Firestarter. It tells of a gold prospector in the Yukon who's fighting to survive in a biting deep freeze of minus 50 degrees Celsius after having mistakenly wet his feet. Meticulously and with the conscience of care of a habituated outdoorsman, the man is aware of the danger. He makes his fire under a spruce tree, and the dry twigs and branches are just under the tree. The flame licks up and grows. Warmth, life, the man ponders how he just escaped certain death as he begins to remove his frozen socks. His feet, his feet feel like anvils. All around, the boughs of the trees are weighted with snow, and lots of it. The tree under which he made his fire is no different. Near the top, one branch loses its load, causing a domino effect on the branches below. An avalanche of snow descends upon his fire, extinguishing it instantly. The wave hit. My av <laughs> the wave hit. My heart fell. I braced my arms at the side of the cockpit to jump. She was still up. Stay with me, she yelled. I'm right behind you, love. Keep paddling. Don't stop. Go straight for shore, I yelled. I could hear her sobbing in fear. My voice sounded distant to me. We were in over our heads. I looked back for Wangsu, but still could see nothing. I told her I lost sight of our companion. Don't leave me, Roberto. We couldn't land there as the rocks were cliff-like. We beelined it with the waves until a few hundred meters later, we hit a frozen and exposed beach. Frantically, exiting our boats, Bella began to jump around to keep warm, while I dragged the boats higher onto the icy and snowy beach. The wind harassed us unmercifully. I looked at the waves again and saw Wang Su in the distance. Amazing! He was still up and paddling. Upon landing, we could see that he was also pumped with adrenaline. His feet were wet and he couldn't feel them anymore. We put my 800 filled down mitts on his feet while rubbing them at the same time. He wasn't frostbite yet. Bella helped me drag the boats over to the rocks, ice and snow behind, and swept into the knoll that barely offered a respite from the wind. We quickly got to the task of setting up the tent. The wind was so strong that Bella had to jump in, sit in it, even finish setting it up, else the tent would blow away. Probably the sun suddenly cracked the sky. We hadn't seen it since the first day we paddled out. Like a fire, its heat and presence had a comforting effect. We had made it through. Once Wang Su and Bella were in the tent, I passed them our sleeping bags to warm up. The three, the three banshee winter down sleeping bags that Mountain Hardware had supplied us for the adventure could not have come at a better time. I am a fervent believer that with the right equipment, you can make it through almost any conditions Mother Nature can conjure up. And boy, were we grateful for all of our down gear. We had expected to make it back to the refuge that day, but it only made it halfway. 
The wind was getting louder. The sun disappeared. It began to get colder quick. There was no way we'd be moving today again. Depleted of energy, I got to cooking us some breadless burgers in the vestibule of our tent. This is something I absolutely never do in the Canadian wilderness due to mice, wolves, and bears, but our situation demanded it. We were famished and mentally exhausted after coming down from our adrenaline rush. After polishing off eight burgers between the three of us, we decided that rest was our only option and dove into our welcoming sleeping bags as the wind increased its howl another notch. We couldn't paddle in these conditions. How would we get back? And that is where I had left the end of this story because um, originally I was writing it as a two-part. So I will probably um, show you or read to you the, the second part at some point in time, but I can tell you <laughs> what happened nonetheless because indeed this is all events by me. So it was it was very precarious. It was quite scary. Indeed, if any of us tipped into that water, um, there was a high probability that we could die. And so getting to shore was of absolute importance. And when we did get to shore and being able to make, uh, to get into the sleeping bag and the tent, uh, we all felt much better. But it didn't resolve our predicament, which was that we were still out in the Canadian northern backcountry, um, far away from from where our car was, um, and with conditions that were we were quite aware extremely extremely dangerous. So uh, we we buckled down. We made lots of bonfire, even bonfires, even in the minus uh, twenty weather. We ate a lot because. Always, we are very prepared with plenty of food um, to eat and plenty of wine to drink. <laughs> I think indeed we did have, although it probably ran out quite quickly. Um, to give you a bit of an idea of some of the gear that we were using, one of my favorite sleeping bags I've ever had um, is the one that I had on this trip. It was called the Banshee 800 fill uh, down sleeping bag from Mountain Hardware. Um, it was an average of like minus 15 Celsius during the day on our adventure to the Isle of Quebec. At night, even colder. Many people ask me how we can bear living in such conditions, but when you have the right equipment, it's actually quite enjoyable. On this adventure beyond the 51st parallel, the three of us had Mountain Hardware's uh, Banshee sleeping bag, and it's the warmest one I've ever had. Um, so I highly recommend it. One of the really neat things I liked about this bag is that it had an external feeling like a Gore-Tex-like uh, almost fabric, which was more water repellent than you would find on many down sleeping bags that are quite uh, compressible. Um, and it's, it's waterproof. Yeah, so, so that's what makes it super neat. And it's, uh, it's rated down to minus 17 uh, Celsius. Um, we had our kayaks, uh, obviously 17-foot expedition kayaks with us. Uh, one of Two of the boats that we had are uh, kayaks that fold into a golf bag. Uh, these expedition kayaks can take a massive payload. They're about 16 feet long. Uh, they can take up to 292 pounds of people in gear. We've taken our boats to Australia, where we paddled from Whitehaven Beach. We surfed the waves in Mexico's Pacific coast, and we've even taken them to Iceland. Uh, so really, really neat uh, to have those on that adventure as well. And, uh, and I digressed. I didn't tell you how we got away in the end. And uh, so... So we're in camp, and for a few days we're just being harassed by the wind. 
Um, and we think to ourselves, wow, there's nobody that really that could come and get us. And if we stay too much longer, then uh, perhaps the water's going to freeze and then we won't be able to paddle. So I said to myself, okay, I'm going to jump into the boat and I'm going to paddle the boat back part of the way. Then I'll jump out of the boat and then leave the boat there, walk back and then fix with the gear and then just walk along. When I was walking back, I quickly realized how uh, dangerous it was because the snow, we didn't have snowshoes and the, the snow was very unstable along the shoreline. And so our, our feet would punch through very easily. So, so that was a, a bit of a predicament, I have to say. Um, and, and obviously that wasn't going to work. So the day after, um, you know, and, and in this situation, you know, in all of my backcountry adventures, I'm always uh, the leader in the group. So it's really up to me to figure out how to get everybody out of there. And I think this has come in great, um, uh, this has been a great uh, tool that I've learned from expeditions, because this one was a long time ago, you know, 2013. <laughs> uh, and, and I learned how to uh, be able to stay alive and get people out of situations and, um, and for everything to go well in the end and safely. And I think that this has been uh, a great foundation to my guiding uh, on Adventures Done Right with Andrew Falasco because by by having survived so many things, I am proof that, uh, that indeed I can keep you safe while out there on wacky, wacky adventures. So, uh, so yeah, so grateful for all these uh, types of expeditions that have kept... Uh, me alive. I think I'm going to throw in uh, a little bit about uh, a perfect beach for you here because I gave you shark cage diving uh, and our winter kayaking trip. Oh, no, no, I didn't. Sorry, I, f I forget. I digress. I didn't tell you the end of the story for our kayaking. So how did I figure getting us out? Well, I we, we tied the three kayaks together and we paddled the boats out uh, in this format. And because we became a raft, it was very difficult or next to impossible for the waves, not next to impossible, but very difficult for the waves to tip us. And in this fashion, we were able to kayak back all the way to shore and back to the, to the, to where we had the car. And it was a gleeful moment and the water uh, and the temperatures were so cold and impressive that the, because the water's so choppy that it wasn't freezing, um, even though the temperatures were so absolutely cold. And, and uh, on the pictures I have, you can see that the water that's on the lines um, of our boats and our life jackets and our um, paddles was instantly freezing, becoming icicles. So, so that's how cold it was. And it was a joyous occasion for us to make it back there. And then uh, after we landed, we, we were, we, there was a little refuge where, where it's a guy that uh, cooks meals for snowmobilers and runs like a mini hotel there during the, the winter season. And, uh, and so we just ate, drank, and were very merry for having survived that predicament. So, so there you go. But, um, but yeah, two completely different destinations, uh, the Eye of Quebec, in Eastern Canada and the shark cage diving in South Africa. So let's tell you maybe the perfect beach. Um, many people know that I'm a huge, huge fan of Turks and Caicos 
And uh, Pine Key in Turks and Caicos is most definitely one of my favorite. This uh, island, well, the beach is public, so you're allowed on the beach, but the rest of the island is private. And, uh, and so you can't go on the rest of the island. But that being said, what a cool place. When someone tells me that they know the most beautiful and perfect beach in the world, I dare say that I'm a little skeptical. You see, I've seen a lot of beaches. I felt a lot of sand in between my toes. Some grainy, some rocky, some soft as powder. Some have a lot of people on them, some only the prints of passing birds, while others are fresh and clean, as if they had been broomed. Yes, my standards are high. No footprints, warm and easy to swim in water, powdery fine sand, stunning colors. Pine Cay's two-mile-long beach will leave you breathless and is a perfect honeymoon getaway destination. To get there, you take a 15-minute boat ride from Turks and Caicos, uh, in, from Providencialis in Turks and Caicos, or by plane. Some of the island residents have their own planes, too, you see. Pine Key is a private island with around 36 homeowners that functions like being a member at an exclusive golf club. There is one hotel known as the Meridian Club, which is the only way non-owners can reside on the island. Appropriately, the only way around the island is by golf on white sandy roads. We were lucky enough to be staying with a friend who suggested I leave my shoes behind for dinner. Pure bliss and relaxation. <laughs> so so the digging of these uh, things that I've written in the past is really, um, I was starting uh, the Expeditioners magazine. And, uh, and this was in the nascent stages when I was writing the first edition uh, that I did a Kickstarter for and raised money for. So that was August 2013. But Turks and Caicos, spectacular, spectacular beach. Um, indeed, we've gone back many times since then. So um, I hope you've enjoyed tonight's chat or today's chat. What am I saying tonight? My sense of time is perhaps a little bit wonk. But uh, I will see you guys tomorrow once again. And thanks for tuning in. I'm Roberto coming to you from the Airstream in Whistler, Canada and ready to go outside and chop some wood. Bye-bye. <laughs>